Welcome to Sword and Shield, the official podcast of the 960th Cyberspace Wing. Join us for insight, knowledge, mentorship, and some fun as we discuss relevant topics in and around our wing. Please understand that the views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the views of the U.S. Air Force nor the Air Force Reserve, and no endorsement of any particular person or business is ever intended. Good day, Gladiators. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Sword and Shield podcast. It's Francis Martinez, Director of Psychological Health for the 960 Cyberspace Wing, here with a very special guest, Major Kim Rigby. Welcome this morning. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, Major Rigby, I know your title is a mouthful, so I'm going <laughs> to let you uh, let our Gladiators uh, know where you're calling in from and what your position is. Yes, ma'am. I'm currently stationed at Air Force Global Strike Command headquarters uh, at Barksdale Air Force Base, Louisiana, where I serve as the executive officer to the director of operations and communications in our A36. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And, you know, I try to do these podcasts with real life stories, if I can possibly do that. And I I heard your story at the Department of the Air Force Resiliency Summit. And it's really powerful to hear the, you know, the challenges that you faced and how you overcame them. And knowing that, you know, there is a way to come through some of those challenges. And, And so I'd like to, you know, just open up and start a little bit about like your history and then we can talk about the story that you shared at the summit. Yeah, awesome. I would love to. So in terms of military history, I was not, you know, I never thought this would be my path in life. Um, I did not have a lot of family that was in the military. My grandfathers had both served in the Army and the Army Air Corps. Um, but they never really talked about it. And, you know, my path eventually led me to the Air Force. So I commissioned um, as an officer through Officers Training School. Um, I was a little bit older when I was commissioned. I think I was 26 when I got my commission as a second lieutenant. And then from there, I went to Naval Air Station Pensacola for undergraduate navigator training. After I finished and got my wings there, uh, I went to Barksdale Air Force Base for the first time, uh, where I went to the formal training unit to learn how to fly the B-52 Stratofortress. I'm a weapons system officer by trade. You might know that as a navigator, so I'm responsible for all the weapons activity, making sure you know bombs are on target on time is kind of my J-O-B. From there, I was stationed in Minot, North Dakota for almost five years. After that assignment, I moved to Pensacola of Florida again. Uh, the Air Force had stood up, not that had stood up, but had brought their navigator training uh, for undergraduates to Pensacola. So I had the opportunity to go back there and be part of the instructor cadre. And then finishing my time there, I moved to Barksdale where I started my current position. So it's been a, it's been a fun ride. I've seen three different bases, a lot of the central time zone, and I have deployed, <laughs> uh, <laughs> deployed twice with the B-52 uh, in support of the uh, Indo-PACOM continuous bomber presence mission. So I've been out to uh, Guam twice with my squadron uh, when I was actively flying in support of that mission, which was a, a really great opportunity to take part in as well. Well, I think that's amazing because, I mean, I don't think, I think we're in the newer era where there's more female pilots, but I grew up, my dad was Army and, there, you know, we never talked about any female pilots in the military. And so I think that's pretty awesome. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been a great experience. I remember getting to my operational squadron, and the squadron had just been reactivated after quite a few years, and I was only the third female <laughs> to 
ever be be part of it. So it's it's really cool. We're still breaking a lot of barriers in aviation, even though women have been, you know, part of those, you know, combat coded AFSCs for quite some time. But it's it's cool now. There's there's so many women joining the squadron. So it's great to see a new generation, you know, that that's not a an atypical thing anymore. Yeah. Amazing. And then you're just there, you know, breaking barriers as well and, and being on that forefront of female, you know, females in the military or women in the military. So thank you for that. And thank you for your service. And I mean, service hasn't always been easy. I'm sure you know that. And speaking from personal experience, my husband, he just retired from the Air Force in February. So my whole life has been military as well. And and I know there's significant struggles that, that our people generally will face that are a little bit sometimes more difficult than being just a civilian on the outside. Well, as, as you very well know, um, you know, being part of a, a very up until very recently active duty family, you know, I don't think our challenges in the military are any different than those of our civilian counterparts, but we face them differently because our support systems are sometimes very different, especially as I mentioned, you know, with multiple PCSs that we all go through every, you know, three to four years often, you know, learning a new area. If you have children, getting them into schools, you know, a lot of that stuff can become really challenging. So I think there's sometimes for our military members, it maybe heightens things because depending on what you're going through, you may be, you know, you may have a lot of new experiences that you're going through as well, along with regular life challenges. Absolutely. All the PCSs are, are always fun, that's for sure. <laughs> Depends on how you look at it. Oh, yeah. So I, I, you know, wanted to share again your story of your resiliency story. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to turn it over to you and just give you the floor to, to share, you know, the some of the things that you've experienced in your life and, and, you know, how you came out of that and where you are today. Yeah, I would love to. So, you know, I mentioned earlier that I had uh, gotten the opportunity to deploy twice with my squadron. One of those deployments was in 2014. And leading up to that, it looked like because of TDYs, I went to SOS, which is Squadron Officer School. Officers generally go to that while they're a captain, normally towards kind of the end of their captain time and it's preparing them for, you know, higher leadership. Um, so I was going to that class for about two and a half months, coming home and I would be home over the holidays, the New Year's and, you know, winter holidays, and then was going to be deploying early March. Um, and I was expecting to come home from deployment and then probably go to an upgrade program as well. So we were, you know, kind of on the brink of, you know, my husband and I looking at about 11 out of the next 13 months that I would probably be deployed and TDY, you know, so we were kind of mentally preparing ourselves <laughs> to be apart for quite a bit. But when I came home from that deployment, you know, things had had changed kind of pretty quickly. We had been married at that point for less than two years um, when we found out that John was diagnosed with stage 4B colorectal cancer from the yeah. start. Yeah, from the start, he had about an 11% chance of survival. And he was classified as, as terminal pretty much from diagnosis. So we, you know, we, we started chemo uh, for a while and his results, you know, were looking kind of good. He had some tumors that were shrinking and we kind of went back and forth with his oncologists. Um, they reached out to the Mayo Clinic as well for some advice. And what they recommended was surgery to remove the, the primary tumor. 
It was kind of hard at that point to find a lot of balance with my career. You know, finding harmony in my new role as John's primary caregiver was kind of challenging. We didn't have family nearby in the area. All of our family lived in the Northeast. So, you know, folks couldn't just easily come over and, you know, take some of that burden off of us. You know, and, and obviously, you know, with deployment schedules and an ops tempo, you know, being part of an operational squadron, uh, there wasn't a lot that I could ask of my peers, you know. So there were some challenges for that. And especially for myself, you know, during that time, I I felt like I was letting folks down at work. I felt like I was letting folks down at home, you know, and and it was tough. About a year into John's diagnosis, I had the opportunity to go TDY to do an instructor upgrade. I mentioned I was anticipating doing that right after deployment, but we obviously put that off because of John's situation. And since he was doing a little better, I leapt on the opportunity, you know, in the hopes that I could kind of, maybe that would help me keep on track, you know, with my peers. Mm -hmm. But a couple of weeks later, when I returned from that training, John was, was much worse. His condition had, had quickly deteriorated, you know, following that surgery. So we had a couple, quite a few doctor's visits, some trips to the ER, and everyone was kind of telling us that he was fine. But, you know, I'm seeing him in front of me and I could tell that something was not right with him. Like he wasn't fine. He mm-hmm. was struggling to eat. He was struggling to get out of bed. You know, he was in constant pain. And, and this is a man that was, you know, really active. You know, he worked, he had been active duty military himself. You know, he worked at the airport in town, you know, at the general aviation area, loved his work, loved his colleagues. But now, you know, he's not even getting out of bed. So I could tell something was wrong, but it was it was quite a struggle to get any you know, doctors or medical folks to listen to me. Eventually, I guess I was persistent enough calling and kind of begging for help uh, because his oncology team ordered some new scans. And when we got the results of those, we found out that not only were his tumors, you know, no longer shrinking, they were growing back because we had to pause chemo because of the surgery. But what the tumors, excuse me, what the scans also showed was that John had a really nasty infection and was going to need emergency surgery. And what we Mm -hmm. found out was the only, (laughs) the only hospital that was equipped to care for him was two hours way because at the time we were in Minot, North Dakota, which if any of you have been stationed there, you know, is, you know, can be a pretty remote area. It's not exactly a big city. There's uh-huh. you know, quite a, resources in town, but it's not always the resources that you may have in a, in a larger city. So I got him in my car and we, we drove to that hospital as soon as we could. They took him in for emergency surgery. He had quite a few surgeries after that. The infection that he had, um, they were really surprised that you no, know, he wasn't in worse condition. It was he was pretty bad, but they were honestly surprised that you know it, it hadn't it hadn't been worse than it was that we hadn't lost him. The infection was so bad that it had eaten away his entire tailbone. Um, he had oh, wow. almost, almost half a dozen surgeries to clean out the infected tissue and you know debride the wound and and try to clean it up as best as possible. And following that, uh, he was hospitalized for about two months while he had surgical and pain management needs. You know, we had some challenges with EFMP at the time. And I would give the caveat that my experience was in 2014 and 2015 with EFMP. I obviously have not been on the program for some time. And I know there have been some changes. So if you are reaching out to EFMP for help or are part of the program, you know, please seek more info because my information is a little bit dated and my experience is dated. But prior to that, EFMP had determined that he, the level of care that he needed, he could get in North Dakota. Well, we were kind of looking forward and saying, you know, this diagnosis isn't great. You know, we 
probably needs to be somewhere with better resources in case his condition deteriorates. But at the time, at least, that was not what EFMP structure was like. Again, I'm not 100% sure how it's changed these days, if it has. So please seek out that info if you're working with the program. But because of his new condition after this hospitalization, we did qualify for a move. They did determine that he couldn't get the level of care he needed, which added kind of another layer of stress because now, you know, he's challenged to walk. He's challenged just to sit up. You know, and obviously this wound is on his backside. So it's challenging just to sit. And now we're looking at a cross-country PCS from Minot, North Dakota, you know, the very north of the country to Pensacola, Florida on the Gulf Coast. Mm-hmm. Um, you right. know, so we're, we're looking cross-country, you know, a four-day move. So getting that planned, you know, with him and his condition was very challenging. During that time, I think I, I learned a lot about sharing what was going on, being open and not waiting for my leadership to, you know, maybe ask questions, not waiting to think that I was going to burden them with something. So I decided to just be upfront and open uh, with my leadership and my flight talk about what I was facing. You know, I didn't want to feel like I wasn't meeting expectations, but I wanted to work with them to manage the expectations of what I could give. Because for me, making a choice between my career and my husband was a no-brainer. Like the Air Force was going to take mm-hmm. a backseat. So my commander and I made a new deal. You know, he would help me find some solutions that worked for me instead of just making assumptions of what he felt like I could do or what would be too much for me. And, you know, I would talk to, I talked to my flight doc as well and made a deal with him that I would be open about what was going on, you know, with John and I, what was, what I was struggling with, you know, how I was feeling, you know, not only physically, but emotionally and mentally. And I was very lucky because in the unit I was in, we were geographically separated in this new unit at Pensacola. So we only had two flight docs. So they got to know the instructor cadre really, really well. We didn't have a lot of changeover. So it was really good. We got to have build relationships with our medical team. That deal paid off really well during the routine flight physical. While the IDMTs were kind of taking my blood pressure and doing, you know, the normal vitals and workup, they found that both my blood pressure and my heart rate were kind of off the charts. You know, and I'm kind of just like, this is every day. Like I feel fine. You know, Mm -hmm. and as they kind of did some more tests, you know, my flight doc, I remember him saying to me, he's like, Nike, you know, it's time that someone takes care of you and explained to me that, you know, what I was feeling was all kind of what they were seeing in the tests was kind of, you know, the the manifestation of this like fight, flight, freeze from like three years at this point of living with constant stress. So right then and there, you know, he talked to me about it. He pulled me off flying status. Um, He got me referred to a therapist that, you know, he was one of his colleagues um, in the medical facility just to get me the medical mental health help that I needed and the support that I needed. They diagnosed me at the time with situational depression and anxiety, which was really just kind of a manifestation of everything that was going on you know, with, with John's mm-hmm. condition, trying to manage and balance it. And what they did was they helped me get started both with, you know, talk therapy with my new therapist and with some medication to help manage the depression symptoms so that I could, you know, use it as a support mechanism to help me be there in the ways that I needed to be in my life, both at work and for John. Not too long after that happened, we had some more setbacks with John medically. He was hospitalized following a seizure. And after a really tough and confusing week of him in the hospital, we learned that his tumors had grown pretty rapidly. He was still not doing chemo because of the wound, you know, wound control, wound management, you know, and they were concerned that chemo would kind of reopen that. And, you know, it it was kind of a catch-22. But because of that, what we learned was that his liver at that time was more cancer than it was liver tissue. He had a lot of new and larger tumors in his lungs. They were 
really surprised that he could breathe as well as he could. And, you know, when they talked to us, they said, you know, we're, there really aren't any options left to treat him. Your option is to start hospice care and palliative care for him. And that they thought that he had maybe a month, you know, maybe a little bit longer. We took him home. We did home hospice with him for about the three weeks. His condition kind of continued to deteriorate. At that point, we, you know, were really just concerned with pain management. He had, you know, round the clock pain meds and we were just trying to keep him as comfortable as possible. And we did get to a point where we could no longer care for him at home and we needed to take him to inpatient hospice. He was there for about a week when I got the call um, one morning while I was getting ready to go visit him that he had passed away, you know, that day. There's there's really not a day that goes by that I don't think about him. You know, he mm-hmm. was so proud of of everything that I, you know, had accomplished and everything that was on the horizon for me in the Air Force. So you know, every time I have a new milestone, you know, and I have an opportunity to share, you know, my story a little bit like this. You know, I think about him, but I also think about the things that I learned during that time. And in terms of resilience, you know, what I what I learned the most is that my resilience was bolstered through connection. You know, when I started sharing what was going on, you know, folks just rose to the occasion to support me, to give me the help that I needed. And for me, that all came to be because I realized I couldn't do it alone anymore. You know, not sharing, not telling people what I was going through wasn't working. And, you know, who who knows where I would have been if that flight doc didn't step in, you know, if I hadn't been open with him, you know, because I don't know every day that we're, you know, sometimes we don't necessarily always have the time to just see what's going on with folks. And we'll see each other in the hallway. Hey, how are you? I'm good. You know, we often Mm -hmm. don't say what we're really feeling. So I learned that by sharing, you know, by just being open and answering that question honestly. You know, my friends from my squadron, my my leadership, my flight dog, you know, those folks who surrounded me were able to jump in and help me. So connection has been, you know, a, a huge, a huge piece for me in terms of resilience. And that's just the theme of the Air Force Resiliency Program is, you know, staying connected to be protected. And it's 100% true, right? Like if we're so isolated, you know, we're going to just deteriorate. But if we stay connected, checking and being good wingmen, then we can actually get some, you know, traction and solve some problems and getting people to the right resources. Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, as we think about leadership, you know, it doesn't matter if you're an A1C or a second lieutenant or, you know, if you're a colonel or a senior master sergeant, you know, everyone can be a leader. It's leadership is about empathy, you know, and it's about compassion mm-hmm. and it's about taking care of people. And I firmly believe that, you know, our folks are going to get the mission done. You know, I don't think we need to reiterate how important the missions that we all do are every single day, you know, to the Air Force and to our country. But for our airmen and guardians, you know, to be able to do their missions, they, they need to know that they're taken care of, you know, mm-hmm. Um you know, we need to know that our basic needs are being met, you know, whether that's food, water, shelter, you know, or maybe that's connection, you know, we need to know that those things are in place to support us. And, you know, that's leadership, you know, reaching out and connecting. But I would also challenge everyone, you know, be open and share your story because, you know, we we don't know everything. (laughs) You know, I don't know everything that's going on with the members of my team, but I do when we have the moments to connect when we get to know each other. So yeah, a hundred percent, I think that support and being there for each other, you know, when you're struggling and you can't take much more, you know, let the folks around you be there to lift you up and give you the support you need. 
And and some other points that you talked about is that the work-life balance, right? You were struggling with a home life because of, you know, what was going on with John and his medical needs, but also just talking to your leadership and talking about expectations and where you currently are. And I think people are scared sometimes to do that because they're not sure what the outcome will be. But I think sometimes if we have those open, you know, dialogues and say, hey, this is what's really going on, more than likely your leadership is going to be on board and supportive of what's, you know, happening in that person's life. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's so important. I mean, every like every person that's part of your team needs to be a part of that. You know, we talk about, you know, family care plans for folks with children, should something happen, you know, and you need assistance. Being open and honest about what is going on is going to help them find solutions for you. One thing I realized as I, you know, I have 14 years in the Air Force now. And one thing I've realized as my career has progressed and I've moved is everywhere I go, my network just gets a little bit bigger. You know, I meet folks like yourself and I have those resources to lean back on. And I really realize that I don't always have the answers. You know, I'm a B-52 navigator by trade. You know, I'm not going to be able to answer tough medical questions. You know, I don't have the same knowledge, you know, that our FSS has, but we're all part of a team. And I do know, mm-hmm. you know, the FSS commander, you know, I do know some people across base and I can use those connections to help get you the support that you might need. So I think letting people know what you need, what you're capable of, and basically kind of setting up like an airman care plan, you know, when you're going through tough times. This is what I can do. Hey, you know what? Maybe, you know, maybe for me, it was, it was kind of before the times of VPNs and telework that we've all experienced in the last year or so. But, you know, these days, if there's someone that's in a situation like I was, you know, maybe telework a couple days a week is absolutely a way that they can give back and find better harmony between what's going on in their personal life and in their professional life. So it just takes being creative. I think on our end, it takes being, like I said, open and honest about what you can do. We can't always give a hundred percent each day. But like, if you know that you can do 75%, then man, give it all of your 75%. And you know what? Maybe Mm -hmm. the next day you'll be able to give a hundred or maybe the next day you can give 60. But if you can bring yourself fully to your capabilities that day, you know, for me as a leader, like I'm going to work with you to, to help get you the support that you need and help you, you know, still be a valued member of the team and help you find the harmony that you need in those difficult situations. And I know for the Air Force Reserve Command, General Govee, and then uh, our Wing Commander, Colonel Erich, are very big about, you know, taking care of airmen and their families. That's like number one. You know, obviously we have we have missions set that has to get completed. But if we're not taking care of the people that are running the mission, then, you know, there's a ripple effect, right? And so yeah. um, that that is our number one priority, at least in the wing. And then with the, the Air Force Reserve Command is just taking care of our people. Yeah, Exactly. I mean, I remember I got to take part in the DAF Women's Air and Space Power Symposium and Chief Toberman, the Space Force chief, shared a bit about the platinum rule with us, you know, which if you haven't heard that, it's treat others how they want to be treated. And, you know, I think that's exactly what you said. You know, that's what your wing and reserve is getting after. How do others want to be treated? How can I meet you where you're at? And that's all about connection. Let the team around you connect with you, share your story and actively listen to the stories of those around you. And then, you know, find out how you can help. Exactly. One last thing before we, you know, wrap up, I want to touch on the mental health piece because 
yeah. in the military, there's that big myth that if I go seek mental health, I'm going to lose my clearance. I'm not going to have a job. I'm going to get kicked out. And again, it's like that part that we're just trying to constantly demystify and, and tell people it's okay to get help. It's when you don't seek help and something bad happens, then that's when, you know, we are faced with different challenges. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad you mentioned that. I'll share a little bit, a little more detail on my experience with that. So I mentioned that my flight doc pulled me off flying status that I started, you know, going to therapy and, you know, I kind of had like an open invite to come, you know, I didn't really have set times, but I could just give a call. They'd put me on the schedule for that week, you know, with my doc, but that they also put me on medication. So I was diagnosed with situational depression and anxiety, which was kind of a response to everything that was going on, the stressors that I was feeling. My docs put me on Prozac and for everyday use, which really helped kind of calm me. I felt less stressed. Like I didn't feel those, those physical manifestations that I have to be honest, they were so gradual over time that I didn't feel a difference. It was just my new normal, but they could see it showing up medically, you know, so that's how they noticed. But that helped kind of lessen that, you know, it helped lessen that fight, flight, freeze. It helped me, you know, just kind of relax a little bit. And they also gave me Xanax for times when, you know, maybe the Prozac just wasn't doing it, you know, and it needed to, I needed to kind of you know, kind of stop the bleeding, I guess, if I was having a really bad day. I didn't need to use that very much. You know, when things got really rough with John, you know, we were taking him into uh, inpatient hospice and after he passed, I did. But for me, the process to get back up on flying status was that I had to be off that medication for six months and then just have a quick, you know, medical eval with my doc, which was just kind of the normal PHA workup. You know, how are you feeling? Vitals. For me as a flyer, that was, you know, that was a little bit different because it was you know, controlled substance and as an aviator, there's a little bit different rules than, you know, our average airman may see. So if you are on a special duty, you know, position like that, or maybe you're a defender or an aviator, you know, or as our strikers and global strike know, you know, working with missiles or something, certain duties like that, you know, you may have those, you know, re- waiver requirements to get back up on status. I'm also, you know, when I'm do flying B-52s, I'm up on the personnel reliability program, which is a, you know, screening program to work around nuclear weapons that did not hurt my chances to get back on PRP when I'd be back in an active position. Since I'm on staff right now, I, I'm not up on PRP because I don't work with the weapons. Um, so that's only when you're physically in a position where you would. But I have zero limitations to go back onto PRP should I have an assignment that requires it. I have a TS SCI that hasn't impacted any of that. You know, I, I've seen zero impacts to my clearances, to my ability to do my job, to get back on flying status because of that. And, you know, I think part of that is that I was open and honest about everything that was going going on. You know, I needed assistance. I sought it out. I got it and, you know, was honest with my docs about when I felt like it was right to stop, you know, taking those things to stop that. You know, I didn't need that extra help any longer. So yeah, I I think be open and honest about it. Those resources are there for you. And, you know, your medical teams are there to help you. They're there to get you fixed. You know, mental health is nothing to joke about. And I like to tell folks, you would go to the doctor if you broke your leg, especially if there was a bone sticking out, you know, we'd definitely go to the ER. We'd get that leg set. You know, we'd go get the x-rays. We'd go get the surgery. We would do all the things to fix it and get back, you know, as quickly as we could. So why not do that when, you know, you're struggling a little bit mentally, you know, or struggling a lot mentally? You can't see that as easily, but it is just as important, if not more, to, to get yourself right mentally. 
Exactly. And that's what, you know, we are striving to debunk those myths and make sure that people do have access to care and are seeking the care that they need. Major Rigby, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Uh, I know sometimes talking and reliving the stories can be a little bit traumatic, but I truly appreciate you sharing your story with us today. Well, thanks for having me. And, you know, I always tell folks if me sharing my story helps one airman out there to connect, then it is all worth it. If there's anyone out there who's listening to this who is, you know, going through something similar, or you know of an airman or guardian that's going through something similar, I'm in the global Kimberly.rigby at us.af.mil. I'm always happy to connect with folks. So please reach out if there's any way that I can help you. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And gladiators, if you or someone you know are contemplating suicide, please contact the National Suicide Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. Thank you again, Nike, for joining us and gladiators out. 